0: The Hub is a community.
1: Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Longmore Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
2: The Hub is a space. Celebrating ten years. Through the
0: community. Created by Carl Zillian. Change
2: the Hub is about impact. 90%. The Hub is for everyone.
1: Okay. I guess uh, we should start now. A cordial welcome to all of you. My name is Dr. Clemens Rutner. I'm the Director of Research uh, with the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies at Trinity College. Uh, And this is uh, our last um, uh, research seminar of uh, Hillary term, um, uh, an event which we are organizing in cooperation with the Trinity Long Room Hub uh, for this, uh, I have to uh, present my cordial thanks. Uh, it has been a very successful cooperation so far. Uh, today we don't have a single talk as usual, but uh, rather a little a mini conference of sorts uh, in uh, uh, German Studies. Uh, three of our promising PhD students will be giving a presentation which is connected uh, to the topic of uh, their PhD project. Um, The format is as follows. Uh, Each of the uh, speakers will talk for 15 to 20 minutes. And after that, there will be a collective Q&A session uh, for which you can use um, uh, the chat function, the Q&A chat function, which you have on your screen. Uh, so this will be at the very end. Uh, I would like to start with uh I will uh proceed chronologically. So our first speaker is uh Jason Yasunas Mariotis. Um uh he uh is working on a PhD on German romanticism, on solitude in German romanticism, and he has promised uh, to us to uh introduce us. Um, a little bit in a sense of cultural studies uh, to the concept of solitude. Uh, and floor is yours Jason. Thank you
3: very much. Yeah, as um, Clemens just said, I'm Jason and I'm in fact advised by our, our very own Clemens Wootner here uh, as I share my PowerPoint. Uh, right. So uh, I'm hoping to briefly discuss the sort of heritage of solitude in romanticism, which is my field of research. As as, uh, Cleven said, uh, I study solitude in German romanticism and specifically German romantic literature. Um, And as I've come to realize during the course of my studies, um, solitude has a long history of detractors. And and I hope to examine this relationship uh, and, and to sort of interrogate why there's such a Distrust of solitary uh, solitary figures solitary individuals. Um, I have to say, uh, I'll, I'll kind of exclaim my own bias here. I am uh, certainly an advocate of and for solitude, uh, so I'm sure that'll come across. Now, um, <clears throat> to put it rather crudely, you can we, we could discuss the history of solitude really as the history of private time and and really the the relationship between Uh, how private time is used and how it's sort of uh, interpreted by society. Uh, Solitude and community tend to be presented as a a dichotomy, or rather as a binary. Um, And and I hope to show that they, in fact, are not quite, this is not quite the case. My apologies. um, The title of of this uh, essay comes to me from a paper by the Danish scholar uh, Sven Erik Larsen, who discusses uh, The Labyrinth of Solitude by um, Octavio Paz. And and he uh, analyzes a passage where a young boy is looking at himself in the mirror. And it only comes to realize that he is, in fact, an individual by imagining himself through the eyes of another. By looking in the mirror, he's meta-representing himself through imagined eyes. And uh, this is a similar dynamic that, as I hope to show now, uh, repeats itself throughout the, the, as I'm calling it, cultural history of solitude. Uh, These are the three sort of eras I'm going to touch upon and I'll I'll provide small examples from each. Um, So without further ado, I will get started. Um, The most famous example of solitude in at least German romantic literature is of course, Wald-Einsamkeit, forest solitude. Um, And I won't really spend very long talking about this uh, it appears, th- this little poem, which I've actually presented as one continuous poem, uh, is presented in three separate parts throughout the narrative of the um, novella or at Salem, der Blonde Eckbert, Eckbert the Blonde. Um, and each stanza appears at a different uh, point throughout the narrative and is sung to the main character by a talking bird. Uh, and what I find quite fascinating here is that Solitude, the, the experience of solitude, the representation of solitude, is quite literally mediated to the main character and at another level to the reader or to the, to the audience. And uh, throughout all of the cases, the episodes of solitude I've come across in my research, uh, there isn't a single example of solitude being, you know, solitude being presented as a discrete experience. It's always mediated to an audience. It's always communicated. Uh, which, of course, is something of a paradox. Uh, when when we we present solitude uh, to somebody else, to an audience, it ceases to be exclusively solitary. In some way, it becomes a dialogue, uh, which sort of betrays one of its core principles. Um, and you know, here the solitude is is represented in three slightly different ways uh, uh, throughout different parts of the narrative of the story, um, and. I mean, e- even now, if, if you just Google the term Waldeinsamkeit, uh, you'll see various essays sort of describing solitude, for solitude uh, to, to you and telling you uh, why it's good or why it's bad. Or, you know, many of these essays are sort of claiming that uh, uh, Waldeinsamkeit is such an intrinsic part of German culture that uh, Germans almost have, or German speakers have almost a biological uh, tendency or, or propensity for solitude. And perhaps some of our native German speakers here can uh, shed some light on that for us later. Um, so anyway, solitude is something or rather a propensity for private time it is something that's kind of distrusted through the centuries. Uh, you may be surprised to learn that the very first medical definition of solitude as potentially positive comes to us in 1989 by the psychologist Anthony Storr And he was sort of radical in proposing that uh, the desire to briefly engage in solitude is something that a healthy individual might occasionally choose to do. Um, Even so, as recently as 2016, the sociologist Ira Cohen, not to be confused with uh, the artist, uh, writes in his uh, book Solitary Action, that uh, while my fellow sociologists have made extraordinary progress in the study of how individuals engage in social interaction, they have seldom acknowledged that there's an entire realm of behaviors in which people engage when they're not involved in interpersonal encounters. So that is to say, he's, he's criticizing the understanding of solitude as a derivative experience. Um, and we see a similar, again, distrust in um, the first Definition of, of a solitary individual, which comes to us from uh, Diderot. And I apologize for my uh, lack of trying to pronounce it properly, his name. And I won't even attempt the French word for encyclopedia. But in any case, in the first encyclopedia, he defines the solitary individual as one who, oh, um, well, I, right, uh, he, he defines the solitary as, in regard to the rest of mankind, like an inanimate being, his prayers and his contemplative life which no one sees have no influence on society. So when solitude isn't productive, it's basically non-existent. Uh, and perhaps our friend Trinity uh, Berkeley would uh, agree considering his stance on trees. Um, but this opens up a lasting dichotomy in the sense that there is always a productive uh, sense of, of solitude and an unproductive sense of solitude. In romantic literature, the cases where solitude is uh, considered productive are the ones in which the solitary individual is able to perform or or to mediate their solitude back to community and and prove that it is productive. In the cases where they're unable to do so, they're presented as either mad, uh, bordering on evil, or defined through perpetual victimhood. Uh, The last point I will touch on the next slide. So the sort of historical origins of solitude, if we can call it that at this point, uh, come to us, you know, uh, well, the examples I'm presenting to you rather uh, are from Athens and Rome. Um, In Athens, there were two sort of representations of private time, two ways of viewing it. There was what's known as scholi, uh, which is the origin of the word school or scholar, and essentially meant something along the lines of leisure or leisure time. And it was the unhurried time in which one was free to do things properly and without constraint. And this eventually led to more formal discussions which led to the origins of what we might understand as an academic, sorry, academy or or school uh, for that matter. Uh, Another representation of one more inclined towards non-communal activities uh, is, is the idiot. (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the etymology of our word idiot comes from idiotis, uh, which didn't have the pejorative sense it has now. It had nothing, it had no recourse to intelligence. It rather meant a uh, person who was private. And a secondary definition is one who occupies a private station as opposed to spending their free time in a public office uh, or taking part in public affairs. Somebody who was, you know, to their own. Uh, you may be also interested to know that in modern Greek, there is no word for privacy. Instead, the word monaxia is used, which means solitude. solitude. Um, the more famous uh, incident of a private time from the uh, antique world uh, is otium, uh, which is a Roman term, a Latin term, I should say, uh, which refers in its more famous evolved form, you could say, as uh, the the withdrawal from one's daily business is sort of the, again, unhurried time in which the Roman citizen or or gentleman and indeed both these terms, I should say, are gendered. Uh, They refer to the private time of upper-class male, uh, well-respected citizens. So it was this time in which they were uh, free to pursue their own interests, to maintain their own estates, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Interestingly, however, Otium uh, was originally a military term, um, it appears its first attestation is in the poem Iphigenia by uh, Ennius, and um, I mean throughout the narrative of the poem it becomes clear that uh, Ennius refers to, or, or rather uses Otium to refer to the free time of common soldiers on campaign. And, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the time in between battles. So when, when soldiers were free to do whatever they wanted. And, um, and this is often the case when uh, young unemployed men are left to their own devices, uh, they engaged in debauchery. Uh, they, it was quite a negative term. Uh, originally, it, it sort of referred to drunkenness and just general antisocial behavior. Um, and in the Sources I've, I'm sort of working off of here, which I'll show at the end. Um, the the authors sort of suggest that the desire to stop this debauchery is reflected in in the Roman use of their soldiers as engineers and as um, builders uh, during their off time. And I mean, the bottom left picture, to give you an example, is is a Roman road still in use today in Wales.
1: Um,
3: so. We, we see here already that there is an intense interest on the part of the state in, in the ancient world to manage the free time of individuals uh, and, and to, you know, to, to uh, possess the privilege to describe it in either positive or negative manner. Um, <clears throat> the next uh, sort of era I want to touch upon is, is the Christian era, the early Christian era, and specifically the origins of Christian, Christian monasticism um monasticism began as a lifestyle choice it's never actually prescribed by church or biblical or gospel law um, and it was sort of formalized as an institution simply by the because of the large number of its adherents um, there's of course a biblical precedent for monasticism which where it kind of draws its model from uh, we, of course to saint john the baptist and then again then um, again, and then also um, Christ Himself, who who spent time in the wilderness or the desert. Uh, the the father of Christian Gnosticism is this this fellow on the right, uh, Saint Anthony, um, who whose life we know of because of the writings of Saint uh, not Saint of uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, if I'm not mistaken, um, who wrote the life of Anthony, which as I'm. I've come to, to learn was something of a bestseller in the early Christian era. Uh, it, it's apparently the most read text after the Bible and gospel. Um, and it's quite interesting to, to think that I mean S- Saint Anthony essentially just went into the desert and the way the he sort of founded the institution of the monastery, excuse me, um, is he, he noticed that others started following him through the desert and he, they sort of just lived alone near each other. And Athanasius wrote about this and uh, combined it with commentary and philosophy and um, sort of used it as a model to direct Christians uh, in their own lifestyles. And also it, it was sort of used to criticize the practices of the two secular Roman government as well. Uh, of course, this is a very uh, you know simplified account, uh, but. Have only 20 minutes. Um, interestingly, uh, some authors argue, the monastery was, was actually consciously used as a tool of social cohesion. Um, specifically, the Byzantines or the Eastern Roman Empire uh, would construct monasteries in very isolated, rural, and importantly, pagan areas. Um, as you can see here, uh, it's not so clear. On the right map, we have a you know, locations of Byzantine monasteries, which are placed near towns. And if we compare it to the topographic map of the same area uh, Palestine, we see that most of the monasteries, in fact, are in the most arid parts of the desert and in the mountains, uh, and most are not near the sea or the Jordan Valley, which are the two sources of water. Um, so sp- specifically, the scholar uh, Doreen Barr argues that uh, the, the philosophy behind this practice was that when monasteries were placed near cities uh, or towns, rather, the townspeople were encouraged to depend on monasteries for access to food, uh, social life and and things like that. And that the very regimented order of the monks would permeate into the town, leading not only to religious conversion, but also acculturation to the Roman style of doing things, um, if we could say. Um, However, of course, the monks remained separate from the townspeople. They were still monks, first and foremost. They, they, they were meant to play a part. They were, you know, uh, a model to be followed. Uh, so in any case, we, we see here throughout the institutionalization of the monastery, the, say, transformation of the monk from basically a madman who wanders off into the desert into a, a, a model for the, a good life. One, one too far. Um, moving now into the early modern area, um, we see uh, rather a, a very important individual for my research is Georg Zimmermann. And if you ever Google him, do not confuse him with George Zimmerman, the the you know killer. Um, Georg Zimmermann was a physician and also philosopher uh, who was quite consciously a Believer in in say Enlightenment Europe, um, he saw himself as you know a member of the bourgeoisie, and, and he very consciously self-identified with this this uh, belief that um, so, sorry, human nature was essentially um, communicative, and and you know progress was based on uh, social interaction and and um, communication, uh, constant dialogue any other act, and I quote from this book, The History of Solitude, which I very strongly recommend, was seen to him as being fundamentally derivative and uh, well, essentially morally wrong. Um, as a physician, he was interested in medically intervening in solitary individuals. He, he thought it was a mental disease. Um, and he distinguished between two types of, of solitude as a mental disease. Uh, The more uh, pathological, um, as he called it, black melancholy, which was uh, you know, the symptom of a madman, and uh, what he called white melancholy, which is sort of the propensity of uh, the elite to temporarily withdraw from uh, public life, which is perhaps too uh, taxing in order to regain energy and uh, re-enter society at another time. He saw both as a problem. Uh, but of course, as you can imagine, that the Black melancholy was very dangerous. Um, so he, he spent quite a good deal of his life uh, sort of engaging with so, uh, solitary individuals and then trying to treat them medically. Um, He is the first physician, as far as I know, at least, to try to um, diagnose the causes of of solitude, which, which again, he viewed as as an illness. Um, However, we also see equally the use of solitude in the same period as a um, means of correcting behavior and as a means of punishment. Um, Foucault discusses at length in his work, his famous work, uh, Discipline and Punish, the increasing interest of prison authorities and the state to use solitude as a means of, let's say, correcting, quote, the soul of the prisoner, uh, to, to treating the soul of a penitent rather than the crime itself. Uh, he argues that um, punishment and, and disciplinary models became less interested in actually uh, punishing the crime itself, but rather in molding the mind of the individual so as to stop them from engaging in antisocial behavior or criminal behavior in the future. Um, Many prisons began to use the religious model, which was seen at the time as being very, um, almost, you know, wildly liberal and too soft to treat prisoners, wherein criminals were placed in isolation and the, the assumption was that uh, given enough time alone, they would be forced to reflect on their crimes and and slowly but surely um, change their soul or something like that to put it quite simply. Um, Of course, that didn't work and actually exacerbated many uh, mental illnesses. Um, As we are, if I'm waning on time here, I just wanted to provide a small um, case study here which is, oh, I believe, uh, actually, I've come to the end of my time. But in any case, I wanted to leave us with the sort of this this following contrast, wherein solitude is seen as the ultimate punishment uh, in solitary confinement. But on the other hand, it is seen as sort of the ultimate, uh, or can be seen as the ultimate reward or or privilege to escape the confines of um, society. And I leave you with that. So thank you very much. And uh, apologies for going slightly over.
1: Uh, I believe you're muted Clemens. Yeah, uh, so I hope you could hear me. i sorry, sorry for being a bad cop and um, I, uh, maybe you can say a few words about your 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 case study other uh, you know um, at the end uh, in your in our Q and a session. Sure. Our next speaker is uh, Tom Hadley. He's also a PhD candidate um, uh, at, within our school at uh, with the German department. Um, and he also shows that uh, transdisciplinarity, Uh, is not only a lip service in our school, but it's a daily practice almost uh, because he does uh, this kind of border crossings between um, uh, literature, modernism and maths. Uh, So uh, he will present uh, on spatial reckonings, das Raumproblem in modern mathematics and German modernism. Thanks, uh, Tom, the floor is yours.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, I'm just going to share my screen now. Is that coming up okay? Yes. Perfect. Um, yeah, So good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you, Clemens, for the introduction. It's really nice to be able to kind of do this, um, even if it might be one of the last ones online. Uh, so maybe from the slight spoiler, um, the kind of the two fields that I'm trying to bring into a conversation with one another here. Um, mathematics and the arts maybe still strike most as an unlikely coupling, um, even despite the kind of the rise of interdisciplinarity and in academic work. I think it's still fair to say that they're often considered two subjects with very different influences, aims, and and origins really. And it's this kind of enduring perception that my research is going to try and undermine by focusing on the modernist epoch around 1900. So while the cultural term modernism uh, will be familiar to most people here, um, I would say, uh, kind of referring to various artistic currents, um, in the immediate decades, around 1900, the idea of modern mathematics may be slightly less recognizable. And though it, I'll discuss it in a bit more detail um, later, it's probably enough to say for now that mathematics too underwent its own period of massive transformation, also around 1900 in response to the discovery of various, say, inconsistencies and in methods and ideas that have been taken for granted for centuries, even millennia in some cases. And these discoveries were fundamentally linked to a conception of space. In the mathematical community, this period is now known as the rise of modern mathematics. And I was trying to come up with the best way to kind of get inside this topic for, um, for today. And I settled on maybe counterintuitively on discussing how unoriginal the idea might actually be, um, but perhaps for all of the wrong reasons. Fascism, as we've known since Falta Benjamin, has always been concerned with aesthetics and the relationship between German Nazism in particular and artistic production has been discussed at length from Benjamin himself through Lachulabar's work on myth-making and Indu Michaud's work on um, the culture of art in, or the cult of art in the Third Reich. And But even just considering more concretely the historical context, what followed in the wake of 1933 was a destruction of a cultural scene of the outgoing Weimar Republic, which had seen an efflorescence of modern art, literature, and film. And the notorious book burnings pictured here of May 1933 saw the destruction of tens of thousands of literary works from the modernist sphere, among lots of writings by Jewish authors. And then four years later, an infamous four month long exhibition in Munich called Entartete Kunst, Degenerate Art, took place, which perhaps best encapsulates this kind of cultural war of the 1930s. The exhibition showcased most works across um, major modernist strands of German, German modernism, and they were cast and derided as un-German and unnatural. And together with the book burnings, this exhibition was, as most scholars conclude, tantamount to the attempted murder of German modernism. This painful story and the cruel fates of many of the artists involved um, are well documented and scholars like Thomas Antz have worked to unearth and foreground voices lost to this regime. But much less well known, however, is the simultaneous censorship and of um, mathematicians and more curiously of mathematics as a discipline. And alongside troubling stories of many Jewish mathematicians who were active in German universities, there was a decisive attempt to establish a paradigm of Deutsche Mathematik, German mathematics, led by Berlin-based mathematician Ludwig Bieberbach, initially a member of the SA before he joined the Nazi party as an academic. The movement began to communicate its philosophy through a bi-monthly scientific journal, also entitled Deutsche Mathematik, pictured here, uh, from 1936 onwards. And alongside racialized theories of mathematical pedagogy, it foregrounded certain sub-disciplines of mathematics that make it somewhat unique when compared to other academic journals of the time. Geometry was disproportionately highly represented. And as historian Philip Kranz notes, this is important for ideological reasons, something we don't often link to mathematics as a subject. Historically though, ge- geometry forms one of the ancient central pillars, so-called central pillars of mathematics, finding its origins in around 2000 BC. First formalized by Euclid of Alexandria um, in his treatise, The Elements, that are 300 BC. Geometry, I think Jason could maybe help me here, takes its name from the Greek geo for earth and metron for measure, um, and refers essentially to that, the study and measurement of space, more specifically the empirical space of nature, of our world. And it's responsible for the many things that we all know from our school days, Pythagoras theorem, triangles of 180 degrees, Um, and its link to the real world facilitates classical mechanics developed by Isaac Newton, which overlaps with the field of physics. And geometry is regarded in short as Die Vermessung der Welt, if we could borrow the title of Daniel Kehlmann's Unexpected Bestseller in 2005. But unsurprisingly, as prime example, as a prime example of mathematical application, it's applied mathematics, geometrical thinking has found use in industry, in an area of an area if concerned any modern militarized nation Nazi Germany would be no exception but there is something else about this privileging of geometry by Deutsche Mathematik modern mathematics is perhaps best understood as stemming from a loss of confidence in this whole idea of space in the first place which fell apart in the latter decades of the 19th century Euclidean geometry which had been heralded for millennia as the geometry of our reality was found to be logically inconsistent unprovable And mathematicians realised that it's possible to construct many different geometries, the non-Euclidean geometries here, all of which are equally true, equally consistent and valid. Modern mathematics, in a sense, abdicated its claim, therefore, to the space of the real world and as compensation for this loss, it turned inwards towards self-justification by method, by productivity, and instead of the space of nature, the relations and and operations of logically controlled mathematical language became in themselves the object of mathematical inquiry. Mathematics became, in short, abstract and self-referential, a language that speaks only about itself and its inner workings. And as reactionary as the regime from which it stemmed, Deutsche Mathematik tried desperately to hold on to this older, more united, applicable and intuitive mathematics of real space, deriding the abstract, and often counterintuitive modern mathematics as perverse. So a curious overlap is already clear. Next to the assault on cultural modernism by Nazi leadership, there was an attempt by some German mathematicians aligned with the party ideology to smother developments that shepherded in a mathematical modernism. So alongside Entartete Kunst, one could posit perhaps a counterpart in Entartete Wissenschaft, degenerate science. This dark history surely tells us that modern mathematics has more in common with cultural modernism than a rough time period and the adjective modern. But what then is this commonality and can the decades leading up to 1933 therefore be perceived as some sort of a point at which these two disciplines begin to harmonize in some way? And this is essentially where my research, my, research, my project starts uh, by trying to populate this empty space in the middle here. But then comes the how? how do we do that? And there have only been a handful of studies on the question of adding modern or adding mathematics to modernism, mostly by two historians um, of mathematics, Herbert Mertens and Jeremy Gray. And while both argue that mathematics underwent what they call a modernist change, they use brisk axiomatic definitions of modernism to, and then go on to show how their definitions fit mathematics. There are a few problems with this, I would suggest. Firstly, it's notoriously difficult to define modernism in any stable, all-encompassing way. It's a very slippery term. And establishing a very broad definition of it and then applying this historically to say, yes, that fits, kind of could remind us of what literature's most famous investigator, Sherlock Holmes, maybe he's not, um, calls the capital mistake, twisting facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And the definition would also have to be so vague and general, thus hindering any meaningful comparison between mathematics and art and culture. And I would say that this is evident in the works that were just mentioned by Mertens and Gray. I would suggest that a more effective way of comparing the two would be to examine it for central concepts, such as space, um, for commonalities then. Um, The conception of space, as was just seen, was a driving force for changes in mathematics, and cultural modernism, by some, is often just associated with a rethinking of space, obviously among many other things. And this thematic way of looking at things forces us to raise the tricky question of influence, and scholars in this area have distanced themselves from what they call a two-way traffic approach, viewing with skepticism any attempt to show influence between modern mathematics and artistic modernism in either direction and I pulled out um, a quote from Gray here that I think is quite telling. Um, There seems to have been little direct influence of the broad cultural shifts into modernism on the practice of mathematics. It is indeed hard to see how a mathematician drawing whatever inspiration from a Cubist painting or James Joyce's Ulysses could do different mathematics. And it's hard to argue with this, of course, but I would ask, is that really how influence works? Or at least is it the only way that influence works? Two fields may not influence each other directly, but this is not to say that they cannot be influenced by common ancestors, so to speak. When questioning the idea of influence between mathematical and cultural modernism, the problem therefore could lie with the preposition. Rather than searching for influence between the so-called two cultures, we should look beneath them and attempt to uncover shared subterranean structures below the two fields. And the task at hand becomes something like careful excavation. And after identifying common philosophical influence when it comes to spatial understanding of modern mathematics and cultural modernism, we could then use this as a springboard for a more meaningful comparison between the two um, that we've seen thus far. It would mean, in short, rereading German modernism in light of its new mathematical doppelgänger. And we could ask, do the spaces that arise in modern mathematics get expressed in similar ways to those conjured up in modernist art and literature? could the language of mathematics even be used to represent those spaces? And while we could explore these questions of influence, expression, and representation individually through a more time, I think for the purposes of today's talk, we should bring them together um, a little bit. And from the late 1800s, kind of to weave it all together, um, on the back of the discoveries surrounding space and geometry mentioned earlier, mathematicians realized that space just had to be redefined. What was there before was just untenable. And many mathematicians wedded to this close proximity to physics viewed this as a crisis, a major loss of the discipline's object. Some more optimistic thinkers, however, saw in these changes not a loss, but an emancipation, the opportunity to create something authentically new within mathematics. So mathematician Felix Hausdorff and the Bavarian Emmy Noether would be two significant voices here, among many others. Um, and keeping in mind the regime that would emerge in the 1930s, as Jewish mathematicians, both have very bleak biographies. Having lost the right to work in universities after 1933, Hausdorff, aware that he was to be transported to a camp, committed suicide with his wife and sister-in-law in 1943. Another, who after her dismissal, led a covert mathematical research group in her living room instead, managed to escape to the US in 1934, but died just one year later due to complications from routine surgery. While Noether, unlike her male counterparts, and despite her brilliance, had to work unpaid in Göttingen until very late in her career, both are regarded as foundational figures in modern mathematics as a discipline um, in university. And both insisted on maintaining this Gegenstandsproblem of mathematics, which is to say, both were of the conviction that mathematics must have no relation to the real world. Moments of mathematical creation, and both of them viewed mathematics as inherently creative as a pursuit, these moments only emerge in the abstract, strictly. And topology is, Oh, sorry, jumped over a bit here. Um, yes, so for the, um, for the spatial question um, of these two mathematicians, Hausdorff's work would be the most immediately relevant. Um, and he realized that a new language of space was needed in the discipline. He radically reworked space in mathematics with set theory, which was itself a nascent field of the time. And in this light, space is no more than, we could say, an empty metaphor for its contents. The elements of a set are the space itself. Gone, therefore, are the days of the empirical space of the real world in mathematics. And by framing space as a set, Hausdorff developed what became the standard language of spatial understanding in mathematics from then on, which is called topology. And it's often regarded as the prime example of mathematical modernism due to its inherently abstract nature that doesn't rely on our intuitive notions of size and measure when we think of spaces, but instead it asks things like can we define the idea of nearness without an idea of distance? What stays true about a space when it undergoes some transformation? I, in his words, what is the relationship between Urbild and Abbild, the original and the copy? And what does it mean for a space to have an inside and an outside? What does it mean for a space to be open, closed, neither, or even both at the same time? Topology examines, I would say, in short, the essence of a space that we construct only in language, nowhere else. And this reframing allows for interesting ways into comparison with modern art and culture, because in topology, mathematical spaces are not external ones that are observed, and measured, but rather they are created. Uh, they're spoken into being by the language of mathematics. And if you'll give us some, forgive us, a somewhat thumbnail approach um, with counterintuitive, deformed spaces like the Klein bottle, um, here a topological space with no inside or outside, now dominating the mathematical landscape. We could consider the wildly distorted and warped imagery of German expressionist painting, for example, Kafka's incoherent, labyrinthine, impossible topologies or to stories where the conflict between inner and outer frames of reference leads to an ontological indecipherability, like cinema's first ever twist ending in Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari in 1920, Um, or even, it's it's not not pictured here, but Léo Perutz's Viennese modernist Krimi, um, Der Meister des Jungsten Tages, The Master of the Day of Judgment, described by reviewers as the literary love child of Kafka and Agatha Christie. Um, It also, well, these questions, of things like Ur-built and App built our original and the copy, could help shed light on some lesser-known works, such as Viennese writer Mela Hartwig, whose fiery short novels feature unfeeling and obsessive protagonists, mainly young women of the 1920s, uh, Vienna's bourgeois class, who see themselves as leerstellen, empty spaces, that are metamorphosed and reshaped by interactions with others around them. And this new creative way of examining space indisputably put Felix Hausdorff center stage in the modern mathematical community in the 1920s. Yet his career until around 1903 would have characterized him as an unlikely candidate to upend longstanding mathematical norms. His primary area of work was in applied mathematics and astronomy. So how then did this adherent of the close relationship between mathematics and physics come to be one of the people who defied it the most? The answer lies with the fact that between 1897 and 1903, Hausdorff turned his attention to philosophy and art, and under a pseudonym, Paul Mongre, Paul to my liking, he released several philosophical essays discussing the nature of space, alongside a few few plays. Um, And by delving into Hausdorff's writings as Mongre, we discover a voice that's not often connected to mathematics, for good reason, um, but whose influence on cultural modernism is perhaps unrivaled, and that's Friedrich Nietzsche. We find that um, Hausdorff-Mongré's preoccupation with Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return of the same, a thought experiment in which the universe is cyclical, repeating itself over and over for infinity, sparked Hausdorff's interest in the issue of space and the up-and-coming set theory in the first place. While Heidegger, for example, insists that Nietzsche's cyclical universe is just a thought experiment, it's not a serious model for our physical universe, this is precisely why it's link to mathematics could be unsurprising because mathematics, too, had renounced any claim to the real, physical space of nature. It's a language of thought experiments, of speculation, where spaces could be conjured into being just by being thought of as sets. And moreover, we find that Nietzsche's unsparing essay on truth and language, Über Wahrheit und Lüge, guided Hausdorff's hand in conceiving of this new mathematics as an experimental language of freie Schöpfung, free creation. And in short, Hausdorff found Nietzsche as a young applied mathematician and Nietzsche sent him back into mathematics but to a very different destination, the abstract pure mathematics of space that would shape and mold the disciplines own modernism. So to come to something of a conclusion, while because of time, I was only able to kind of gesture to some initial ways to compare spatial understanding and expression in modern mathematics and cultural modernism, The claim that modern mathematics came about organically and without any external influence, which many mathematicians will still hold, um, is simply untenable. Friedrich Nietzsche, as is well known, was a central influence for cultural and aesthetic modernism um, that emerged at the turn of the century. But he was also the primary philosophical influence behind Felix Hausdorff, who's by anyone's standards, one of, if not the figurehead of mathematical modernism. In the Raumproblem, the problem of space, modern mathematics and aesthetic modernism seem to have some philosophical ancestors. And even from these thumbnail comparisons, they can be seen to express themselves in similar ways. So for the bigger picture, by bringing mathematics into the wider modernist arena, we surely challenge the usual disciplinary boundaries that keep mathematics and the humanities on very separate ends of a traditional university campus. Um, That's probably enough for me time-wise, thank you.
1: Thanks a lot, Tom. Um, Another inspiring presentation. And uh, I was thinking of the two cultures that are uh, once in a while conjured uh, uh, as a kind of uh, buzzwords to what we call uh, the other end of college. Um, uh, Thanks for bringing them together. Uh, I guess uh, we'll have a lot of questions at uh, at the end for all of you. Our last speaker is uh, Connor Brennan. Uh, we are very happy that we won him back from Oxbridge, from the other island. Uh, this was our our little moment of a post-colonial victory over our uh, potential uh, uh, kind of uh, mental mothers or whatever you call universities. Um, so um, Connor is going to speak uh, about out of the cage into the echo chamber, finding forms for the anthropology seen uh, connor uh the floor is yours for a stark starken schluss
0: thanks so much uh claimants hi everyone <clears throat> it's really it's so nice to uh to speak here today with uh with dear friends as well as very esteemed uh colleagues so thanks so much for having me um i'll just share my screen here okay so <clears throat> As Jason's talk uh, nicely demonstrated, there's, uh, there's this idea that floats around that PhD topics are always, in some sense, autobiographical, if you scratch beneath the surface. Um, in my case, obviously, that's only true in, in a loose sense, you know, so maybe as a habitual procrastinator, I can kind of see how this constant underlying dread or something like the climate crisis and the gnawing anxiety that time is running out are probably in some kind of perverse, perverse harmony with my own internal weather. But there's also another meta element that I think a lot of PhD researchers can probably relate to, which is this often repeated fact about the Anthropocene that if you're trying to talk about it, it's very difficult to do it on the right scale. When you try to zoom out to see it all clearly, you get lost in abstractions. And when you try to home in on the details, it's quite hard to see the wood for the trees. So like most of us here, I think that that does very much mirror how I relate to my own thesis. So today the challenge is going to be to navigate two scales, the overall shape of my thesis project and and some of the bits and pieces that make it tick. So in order to do that, I'm first going to give a very brief uh, intro to the broader topic at hand, to my chosen authors then, and then to some of the kind of other questions bordering my topic. And then I'll walk you through my thesis outline as it currently stands and try to offer maybe one example from each chapter that will serve to illuminate what's in there. But I do know we're short on time, so I'll probably skip over one or two. Okay, so what's the thesis about? Um, Well, it examines how ideas around climate and the Anthropocene are figured across a range of contemporary fiction. This obviously does include a kind of thematic or content level. So everything from depictions of plants and animals to vegetarian characters or the psychology of denial. But it's more interested in how this knowledge can or can't be fictionalized, defamiliarized, aestheticized, and otherwise rendered in literary form. So hence the focus really on prose fiction, which kind of seems to be where the where the rub is a lot of the time. Most of the very many diagnoses of a crisis of storytelling in the Anthropocene, tend to focus on the novel as particularly ill-equipped. Uh, historically, it's a pretty young genre that seems especially unable to adapt to this new awareness. So the go-to example here is always uh, Amitabh Ghosh's The Great Derangement, which argues that the novel pretty much came of age alongside industrial modernity and gradualist understandings of geology as this background of slow incremental change. Ghosh argues that as a result, the novel is now no longer fit for purpose as climate change brings back the need for catastrophist understandings of natural processes. That were favored in earlier modes like myth and epic poetry and that we now tend to consign to genre fiction and this account has since been criticized as as kind of a bit polemical, but it's still been extremely influential so it's good to throw it out there. Who am I talking about? Well, uh, this slide has to be taken with an especially large uh, pinch of salt because the thesis so far does involve a lot of surprise cameos from other contemporary writers. But my sort of recurring cast consists of Christoph Ransmeier. He's an Austrian writer known for high literary bestsellers like Die Letzte Welt, The Last World. Olga Tokarczuk, a Polish author who's recently gained prominence in English translation. And that is how I'm reading her. I'm reading her in translation after winning a whole slew of awards, including the delayed 2018 Nobel Prize, and Richard Flanagan, an Australian writer best known for his Booker-winning novel, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. So why these authors? Well, as you can see, it's quite a broad corpus, but I think that's probably justified in the context of this wider disciplinary pushback against uh, what Timothy Clark calls methodological nationalism. Since we're discussing concerns have absolutely no regard for national borders and those ideas are very much reflected in the writing of these authors as well but maybe the most important reason that i've chosen these particular authors is that they're not nature writers they manage to fly by one of the most common and most pernicious nets which is this sense of literature as increasingly just a practical branch of eco-criticism on the contrary, these are all kind of the type of writers who tend to worship at the at the altar of art, to believe that literary writing is incommensurate with being assigned practical or political goals. So we're looking at something quite different than the Anglo-American tradition of protest writing about nature that's uh, often synonymous with eco in the public consciousness. And related to this is the fact that while they're all still writing and publishing now, their bodies of work extend back into quite different historical contexts. So I don't know you can maybe see from the, the birth dates which are all quite close together that they're kind of uh, what my generation might call boomer authors um, and they've all recently and you get the feeling almost reluctantly tried more overtly to represent the climate crisis but different versions of the same concerns remain latent in their earlier works and that historical gap between what they're writing now and earlier points in their writing I think helps us to think a bit more clearly about one of the questions I mentioned in my talk outline, which is the question of contemporariness. I think there are kind of two sides to that question, or maybe there there are three. So how writers relate to rapidly unfolding events in real time. That's one issue. Um, Then the role of scholarship in the absence or presence of that historical gap. And relatedly, maybe where we draw the line of the contemporary. So, you know, what's is it a different type of contemporary we're talking about if it's a text from 2021 than something by the same author who we consider a contemporary writer, but it's from the late 80s or 90s? So, some of the other kind of big questions that border on that are uh, the proximity of fiction and nonfiction, which often in the eco realm seem to have just merged (laughs) entirely, Um, the relationship between art and activism especially because it's a type of activism that's not so linked to human identities, which are kind of, they do fit with the novel structure. And this is this is a different cause that's being taken up. Related to that is the sort of social element of all of this, the dangers of preaching, uh, the bent towards prophecy, kind of moralistic tone, as opposed to uh, approaching these subjects with irony, satirically, um, humorously or kind of with play. Okay, so here's the the shape of the thesis as it currently stands, but as these writers are at pains to tell us, nothing retains its form, and I'm sure this chapter outline is absolutely no exception. So the first chapter uh, I've maybe somewhat unimaginatively called Stories. There have been quite a few doom-laden pronouncements about a crisis of storytelling in the Anthropocene, but they often don't go into much detail about what they mean. In Tokarczuk's Nobel lecture, the tender narrator, she pinpoints the parable as the mode that we're missing. That we've largely lost the parable from view, she writes, is a testament to our current helplessness. The Polish word that she uses here is bezradność, I think, <laughs> which I'm told is a very close literal equivalent to the word used by her German translator, ratlosigkeit. The German word rat means advice, guidance, or counsel. And this is ratlessness. So <laughs> to be uh, without rat is to be kind of clueless in the sense of having no guidance as to how to proceed. And this word and this idea bring us straight back to uh, a, a critic who Tom mentioned, Walter Benjamin, and his seminal essay, De Erzähler, The Storyteller. Whereas the true storytellers, Benjamin argues, are wise and wissen rat, can give counsel, he says, Mitten in der Fülle des Lebens und durch die Darstellung dieser Fülle, bekundet der Roman die tiefe Ratlosigkeit des Lebenden. In the midst of life's fullness and through the representation of this fullness, the novel gives evidence of the profound perplexity of the living. And that will sound pretty familiar to anyone who's ever cracked open a book titled something like Anthropocene Fictions or Allegories of the Anthropocene. Benjamin is important for all three of these authors, especially in their approaches to history. But where Benjamin contrasts the novel genre unfavorably with true storytelling, these are authors who at different times appear to venerate both the parable or myth and the novelistic tradition. So in this chapter, I'm kind of looking to tease that out a bit. Which of these, if either, is supposed to be in crisis? Or are they both in crisis in different ways? So as an example, Benjamin comes down pretty hard on this idea of éclairant or explanation. Uh, which he thinks that real storytelling should just omit entirely. What Benjamin seems to mean here is a type of psychological explanation. But I've noticed a trend towards a different kind of explanation in my corpus, a kind of explicit declaration of physical laws like entropy and of processes like growth and decay. So that instead of just showing these things, which the text definitely could do, they'll afterwards and intermittently spell out things like, keinem bleibt seine Gestalt, nothing retains its form, which is a motto that Ransmeyer picks up from Ovid and that informs his whole body of work, or alles bewegt sich unaufhörlich, Platz, wandelt die Form, everything moves unceasingly, swaps places, changes its form, so on and so forth. This relates, I think, in an intriguing way to Benjamin's notion of Naturgeschichte, which means natural history, but also uh, pleasantly in German, it just literally means nature, story. Benjamin thinks that by reporting events dryly and without explanation as chroniclers used to do, this kind of circle of life pattern of things will naturally refer back to Naturgeschichte. And our own Katrina Leahy picks up on this function of Naturgeschichte as the explanation from outside, which allows stories to operate devoid of explanation within. So I think it's kind of interesting that writers are now feeling the need to protest too much about the laws of nature to spell them out just in case we missed it. And I'm sort of curious about what that has to do with anxieties uh, and ideas about the contingency of natural laws. Right. the next chapter is called Scales, Bounds and Cages. So it's focusing in more closely on aesthetics and form. And this is the chapter that my talk title draws on. It looks at the scale problem that I began with, always too big or too small and how that plays out in narrative focus it also outlines some of the contradictory ways in which these texts always gesture towards the non-human world and all its interconnections as kind of unknowable, mysterious, imponderably complex, but then kind of paradoxically push narrative omniscience to its limits in trying to represent them. And I find that there's often a kind of pseudo-religious or prophetic bent to this. So texts will start with like a, a real Genesis: uh, Why, at the beginning of things, is there always light? Which is how Narrow Road to the Deep North Begins, or first there was nothing, then there was everything, uh, which you might recognize from that brick of a tree novel, The Overstory*, that was on bookshelves a couple of years ago, uh, and also ends with a statement of kind of unendingness, this will never end. So as an example of this chapter, the two, the two models uh, in my talk title for being trapped in the Anthropocene, the cage and the echo chamber, they're both in here. So again, in contrast to the Anglo-American tradition of eco-writing, there's a kind of a meta element to these texts. The characters are often aware that they're trapped in a story or at least in unreality, in falschen Welt with a double meaning of wrong and unreal. I connect this using Adorno's dictum about uh, falsches Leben to ideas about guilt, complicity and responsibility, questions that German critical theory has a lot to say about. I think it's quite easy to see how Adorno's idea that there's no right life in the wrongness relates to ideas like Timothy Clark's Anthropocene horror, which arises when part of the sadness at issue is from living in a context of latent environmental violence and feeling personally trapped in its wrongs. But Clark's also outspoken about the risks of hypocrisy and navel-gazing on the part of eco-criticism as a discourse. Some people might already be thinking it. Um, so I connect these concerns about narcissism and solipsism to texts like Ransmeyer's uh, Die Let's De Welt which features the mythological character of Echo and ends with the protagonist's own name echoing back at him from the walls. My third chapter, uh, Lines and Systems, considers the ways these authors connect ecological destruction to the structures of colonialism, capitalism and empire, often in novels with historical settings. Um, So among many problems with the term Anthropocene is its universalizing homogenizing tendency as though it were humankind in general causing the crisis, rather than the blame and indeed the consequences being extremely unevenly and unjustly distributed. This chapter then comes a bit closer to ideas like the capital scene, paying attention to how our current state of affairs is a continuation of imperialism. And it's here that the links to Franz Kafka, which again I mentioned uh, in, the, in the outline and who's an influence shared by all three writers, here they're particularly strong. So some of the lines and systems I'm talking about are penal colonies, uh, maps, walls, and railways. I'm gonna skip the example just in interest of time, but I promise you it was super interesting. Um, My fourth chapter then is about preservation and remains, which is another topic where German speaking literature and theory really seem to have cornered the market. So if you look at Robert McFarlane's uh, selling book, Underland, all about what's hidden underground, you'll find a load of references to uh, Benjamin, to VK Sebald, to the artist Anselm Kiefer, And usually, especially in this German tradition, this is about the kind of traces and detritus of history. And I take a slightly different tack, focusing on accumulation in form of sort of waste in the way that we usually mean it now. So in response to Philip Larkin's famous line that what will survive of us is love, for instance, Macfarlane writes, "Uh, wrong, what will survive of us is plastic swine bones and lead 207. So an example here is bags. I look at Ursula Le Guin's essay, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, which offers a gendered reading of human ecological destructiveness. So Le Guin goes right back to the beginning and suggests that our narratives of evolution have focused far too much on the development of spears and arrows, that we kind of put these at the center of a story that leads from prehistoric mammoth hunters all the way up to modern day imperialists, generals, and presumably CEOs. And instead, Le Guin aligns herself with the view of evolution starting from the bag as the earliest human tool with these ideas about gathering and care that might point towards a more peaceful, sustainable future. I mean, this was written in, in 1986, so you can't, uh, can't blame her for getting it wrong. Um, but I do problematize this utopian vision by connecting gathering to accumulation, which isn't really accounted for in the essay. And I then trace the bag across short texts by Ransmeyer and Takarchuk, where it becomes no longer a container but is itself the ever accumulating object this new form that surpasses and chokes out the existing ones okay i mean the rest the rest is still to play for uh, so from Le Guin's account of hunting and gathering i think it would be interesting to move on to something like food and ideas around vegetarian vegetarianism and that might offer more scope as well for the kind of social critique uh, elements of the thesis there's a kind of gender element emerging more strongly that that might become a chapter or that I might try to weave through. But uh, that's where I'm at with it at the moment. I'm sure, as Benjamin tells us, the marker of a real story is can you legitimately ask, VK is Vita? How does it go on? So I'll end it there. Thanks for listening.
1: So actually, we should all clap your hands. Our students are much more handy to clap their hands. Um, uh, when, when a talk is over, but uh, this is like a sort of virtual applause uh, for all of you. Thanks for these inspiring presentations. You can now use the Q&A uh, function in order to ask questions. I might go first uh, to, to let some questions uh, pile up and then I will read through them and, uh, and pass them on to the speakers. Actually, I have a question for Tom. Um, these two guys, my favorite uh, and, and famous compatriots, uh, Schrodinger and Wittgenstein, they are not uh, proper math- mathematicians, but very close to the field. And c- uh, can they be counted in two, uh, or is this too far-fetched? Uh, I'm, I'm a complete idiot when it comes to mathematics. My, my father was a great mathematician, but
2: um, yeah, it, it, it does not sit in the genes. Well, um, in terms of Schrodinger, where I think that's um, interesting is this whole area of kind of modern mathematics trying to get away from physics and um, like natural spaces um, or the space of nature. But I don't know, there's, there's sort of a sad irony to it ultimately that physics has its own modernism too. And a lot of these ideas that came about, like let's say with topology and non-Euclidean geometries with no object in mind actually then make their way into a lot of modern physics. Um, So I think, yeah, they I think it's because they go so general. That's sort of the curse of it in a way um, with mathematics that there was this the goal of kind of it, its modernism was to be so abstract um, with no object in mind. But what happens then is you kind of become more applicable in in other ways. Um, has my am I coming through? OK, I think it's the screen's breaking. Yes, up, okay. like yeah, yeah.
1: We can hear you loud and clearly
2: okay super um but um yeah for Schrodinger in in that sense maybe they're just modern physics and modern mathematics end up being closer than they think um with Wittgenstein I haven't had a lot of thoughts on that actually but um kind of a chapter that I was working on just for my confirmation is a lot to do with uh, with mathematics as this you know, developing language um and a few figures that get mentioned in it with um with Hausdorff um in his critique say of or using Nietzsche's ideas is uh, Fritz Mautner um kind of Prague based language theorist around that time who doesn't come out of it that well but who then gets kind of brought back in um via Wittgenstein later on um but yeah hands in the air I haven't had a lot of thoughts about Wittgenstein yet but um I hope that helps with Schrödinger slightly
1: yeah uh by the way quiver i mean uh if if people don't mind we are not so many uh you you can gladly switch on your cameras and we have this kind of seminar atmosphere rather than kind of you know uh, rather than watching tv so if you don't mind we can make this more familiar we are not too many i have a question by by kasha um and uh i guess you guys can read them as well right Uh, uh, connor there's a question for connor you can read it i will briefly summarize it uh, Kasia says thanks for the great talk and for a compelling reading of these texts still I was surprised to see tokachuk's flights on your list rather than her novel drive your plow over the bones of the dead uh, and she suggests that uh, this would uh, fit nicely into some of your categories Connor
0: yeah thanks for that yeah um <clears throat> that's a, that's a great point I mean I just threw a literally the title that people will be most likely to recognize as an idea of the author because uh, my thesis just roams around wildly and there's that limitation when giving a short talk that you can't uh, introduce each text that you're talking about but that's exactly right so that's the text that that's making up a lot of the content of my fourth chapter the whole thing with uh, with bags with uh, hunters and vegetarianism and it's yeah it's a very important text for the gender element and the humor element as well it's uh it's just so much fun compared to some of the other, the other things I looked at. So yeah, thanks, thanks so much for that, um, that point.
1: I have another question by Michael Cronin. Hi, Michael, uh, thanks for uh, dropping by. It's so great that uh, even if we have a <coughs> almost um, exclusively a German uh, seminar that uh, colleagues from other disciplines uh, drop in. So we really take interdisciplinarity uh, seriously. And uh, Michael has a question for Tom. Uh, he says, is there a sense in which another intersecting area for mathematics and modernism at the subterranean level is the area of language? One of the recurring observations about the mathematics of Heisenberg, Schwarzschild, uh, and uh, later Grothendieck and others was that they were inventing a kind of language uh, tantalizing and impenetrable can this be related in any way to the formal explorations of uh, literary modernism?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, like the, again, for the question, but the, the, yet yeah, the idea of language I think is so central. Um, and th- this is one of the good things that I think I would take from who I mentioned earlier, Herbert Mertens, uh, one of the historians to work in this area. Um, and what he does is essentially characterizes modern mathematics as this kind of process of creating a new language um to kind of deal with um you know its own operations in a way to try and talk about itself um which i think does relate in very interesting ways to um to yeah literary modernism and a few a few ways that i thought initially that it didn't expect to be as as relevant or even things like Dadaism, Um, by the time we get around to kind of Hausdorff's work on language, kind of inspired by Nietzsche, is this idea that it has to be rigorously um, without reference to the outside world and we get this formal system of sort of symbols and signs that can be kind of thrown together and mixed and Hausdorff is really interesting in that he's very happy to use these old metaphors that people avoided, like space. Um, The people before him are like, okay, space has become untouchable now because of non-Euclidean geometries, but with Hausdorff, it's like, okay, I'm aware that I'm using this as a metaphor, and it's nothing more than a metaphor, and we'll roll with it and see what happens. Um, But I think it reminds me mostly of things kind of happening in Dadaism and Cabaret, even, with, like, say, Tristan Sarah's poem um my dadaistices gericht zu schreiben this kind of cutting out all of the the letters or the words putting them into a bag shaking it up and kind of bringing them out and piecing together something infinitely new and every permutation is infinitely original um whether it is is another question but um yeah that, that would be kind of the the initial link i would think of there
1: okay thank you tom just to honor you i put on my miskatonic university t-shirt uh because <laughs> Uh, I, I thought that Lovecraft would be a good match for non-Euclidean uh, spaces. Um, and uh, so, but uh, with this little pun, uh, if you excuse us, I, I will proceed to the next question. Uh, Anonymous uh, is asking, Connor mentioned that these writers have no regard for national borders. Is there ever a tension between a strong sense of a uh, specific place and the broader concerns he mentioned uh, climate crisis uh, colonialism etc uh thinking especially of narrow road
0: uh, yeah yeah of course of course um there oh sorry the questions just disappeared but i'll try to keep it in mind um yeah there's there is a strong so flanagan I actually might link that to the other question that was there from ross about the about the nomadic uh, post-humanities so uh, both Ransmeyer and Tokarchuk kind of style themselves as nomadic or traveling writers, whereas Flanagan is very much rooted in Tasmania. All of his works are rooted in Tasmania and he's he's lived there all his life. So there is that difference there. Um, They all pay because of the, I mean, it's that same paradox that I mentioned at the beginning. You've got a kind of something that's a global or planetary scale, but it's still made up of very specific um, contexts that can't be, you know, can't be transposed easily onto others. So of course they pay attention to place and that difference definitely exists across maybe the first two writers and Flanagan. Um, yeah, <laughs> to answer your question. And for the the nomadic post-humanities, ah, oh, I'm so ashamed that's uh, very top of my to-do list. Um, but so what I didn't say about flights before, um, is that, and maybe for people who don't know it, uh, it's in this form of a constellation novel. So that is one thing that makes it a bit more interesting in a way than Drive Your Power Over the Bones of the Dead, which sort of the you know writing about that as an eco text kind of it does it does its own analysis for you. It knows it's an eco text and kind of spells it out in certain ways. Whereas Flights, it is all about the form. It is all about these uh, random episodes and the way they're put together and. Um, so, so far, I've looked more at, um, more at this idea of the constellation that I trace back to Benjamin and how all of the different writers are interested in the constellation and what that has to do with the form of lights, but uh, nomadism, you know, Ransmeyer describes himself as a half nomad, a semi-nomad, uh, and lived here in, in West Cork, where Tom's hailing from today. <laughs> uh, he lived here in West Cork for, for a decade or more. So, um, yeah, that's high on my to-do list, and thanks for the much-needed reminder.
1: Yeah, well, Peter Hanke would be a traveling writer too, who loves uh, to, to, to pose as post-humanist once in a while. I won't go there, please don't get me started. Otherwise, um, um, this will be a very different uh, show. Gilbert, are you still here? I'm afraid he's gone already. He says his question has to wait, um, but uh, there are people who would love to uh, see Jason's case studies uh, case study very briefly. Uh, and I have a question for him then yeah
3: uh, yeah uh, no need to bring back my PowerPoint it's it's not really necessary, um, and I think I can actually also answer uh, Katrina Leahy's uh, question, not two birds out of one stone. Uh, the case. Study- I'll,
1: I'll, I'll read a question to what extent is solitude uh, dependent on the space in which it is performed.
3: Sorry yeah should have, I should have read that myself yeah um, right. So the case study I had wanted to bring was the example of the the Vagrancy Act of uh, 1824, which is uh, a British law and is actually, in fact, still in force in England and Wales uh, today, and it essentially makes um, loitering illegal. Uh, So, so, you know, standing around for uh, a long period outside of a business without uh, having a discernible purpose uh, became legally punishable. Um, So um in in this book again i really recommend a a good deal of time history solitude is um spent discussing uh the the idea that the 19th century saw the end of pedestrian travel as the primary means of of travel and that with the uh implementation of public transportation in the city um travel became more and more disciplined and that uh, people were expected to regiment the, the very means by which they traversed physical space um and that as uh, urban living became more and more ubiquitous the only sort of socially acceptable way especially in poor neighborhoods to to freely traverse public space was was by walking dogs um, and and the idea he kind of suggests here is that the dog walking is sort of a performance of um private time. It's by by walking dog, you're showing that you are engaging in a behavior that is both necessary, not harmful, and in a sense, productive. Um, As regards uh, Katrina's question, to which, uh, to what degree is space, uh, you know, related to solitude's performance, my research itself, uh, I spend a lot of time discussing space and specifically liminal space. Uh, I would say it's inseparable. Uh, They're, they're intrinsically dependent on on one another um and you know i'm a, i'm taking a literary scholars approach to solitude so as a literary device solitude is dependent on occurring in um, sort of liminal spaces which which exist outside of society but are still um tied to it uh, you know I would, I would use the example of Foucault's heterotopia to, to describe this um solitary Figures are always found inside of caves, forests, mountains, uh, things like this, uh, which are also areas that uh, were, were kind of in folklore considered uh,
1: terrifying as well, uh, mm-hmm. since they were both. Yeah, yeah anyway, I'll leave it there. If you could upload your case study very briefly, you have two more questions. You you may be able to answer them uh, after your quick. You know, we get a pink painter. I love that one.
3: Yeah, I mean, basically, I've already. Uh, spoken about the case study. This is it, the, the, the slide doesn't add so much, I would say. Um, right, so another uh, question I've received now is, uh, you've outlined a clear typology of solitude uh, that it could be applied to many other contexts other than German romanticism. Could I elaborate perhaps in the broader implication of your research? Um, well, m- my the broader implication I hope to, <laughs> uh, Share or to, to argue for is that um, solitude is a not a derivative experience. It, it isn't defined through its benefit provided to living within society. The two define each other simply by having a you know by def- by marking an experience as being other to um, society or or by designating a experience as unproductive. You could use, let's say. Uh, we reciprocally define what society views as productive. Uh, if a person who engages in solitude, isn't able to uh, perform their experience in, in a in a way, manner, or through language that community uh, deems valid, uh, the fact that that makes them appear crazy, I think, reveals quite a lot about how society defines itself and what behaviors it sort of. Uh, Uh, accepts as constituent. Um, So I'm I'm very much uh, in favor of uh, non-productive uses of private time.
1: Yeah, there's a last question. Um, Jason, do you think the current uh, recurring lockdowns across the world will affect the contemporary or future ideas or perceptions of solitude? Uh, And this is of course a a question I, I had it in my mind immediately when we got started today. Are there parallel examples from history when such an event uh, affects uh, the idea?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it will. Um, So let me bring the question back up. Um, I'm a little weary to answer that or or attempt to answer that authoritatively since the event is still ongoing. Um, One thing I certainly think is that a lot of people are having their first prolonged uh, encounter with solitude, but it seems to be viewed in society as a deviation from a norm. Uh, whereas I think it's perhaps the the I don't know potentially healthy aspect hasn't been quite harnessed or accessed yet. Um, so I have to answer with non-answer. Uh, yes, <laughs> it will affect it, but. Uh, too early for me to, to feel confident answering anything authoritatively. Uh, are there parallel examples from history? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I would say, of course, any other uh, pandemic would uh, qualify as a parallel example. Um, I would say, for instance, say during the Second World War, uh, resistance communities could be seen as uh, communities of solitude. Um, I don't know, I, like if, if you would ask me this question while I'm not presenting, I'd come up with a thousand examples, but now I'm blanking, so <laughs> I'll leave it
1: there. Yeah, I, um, in, uh, since we don't have any more questions, if you have another one, uh, just uh, drop, drop me uh, a Q&A chat. I was thinking Jason of, of Wittgenstein, and it's the funny story. Uh, uh, when he retired from Cambridge, uh, he came to Ireland uh, seeking solitude. Uh, so he first went to Red Cross Wicklow, which um, is, is a kind of a, a, a backwater village, uh, but he, it was too crowded, too busy for him. So he went to what was a place called Killani Harbor, which is the only fjord uh, island has in the West. And, but then it was also not what he sought uh, uh and so he he went uh he he went to his favorite uh, destination norway again um this comes to my mind uh, so there's a very famous uh, solitude seeker connected to ireland and um uh it would be also interesting the flaneur in a way uh dives into the crowd but at the same time it's kind of of diving into the urban crowd, into uh, busy avenues uh, and, and, and boulevards, but at the same time being basically quite solipsistic, uh, not really too much uh, interacting with the environment, rather taking it as a sort of uh, of Kopfkino, as we say uh, in, in, in German, as a sort of head cinema to, to inspire h- him. It's usually a him and not a her. Um, yeah, it's just a fascinating topic all of you guys, uh, I was really uh, proud of all of you. Uh, we have such a nice offspring uh, here at the School of Languages, Literature and Cultural Studies. Um, uh, if you have, if you would mind uh, that there was not too much gender balance, well, uh, this is purely coincidence. We had quite a lot of female PhD students and we would love to have more of them in, in the future. So uh, if you... If you have a project, uh, yeah, you will be there next year if you want. And I am also amazed about the international crowd we have. I saw Chinese names, I saw Indian names, I saw Irish names, Uh, I saw whatever names, Austrian names, of course. So this is really, um, and I have to say at the very end, uh, before I will say in a Schwarzeneggerian way, I'll be back uh, in, in, in fall with this, uh, hopefully in a hybrid version. Um, it, I mean, oh, given all the grievances we had, all the problems with this freaking pandemic, um, it was actually a very good idea to hold this, keep holding this research seminar, because it uh, gave us a bit of cohesion of social cohesion, uh, but also a little bit of distraction and a very kind of uh, intellectually prolific distraction. And um, actually it has been very successful. So I think the least populated research seminar we had was 20 people for Babylonic poetry. And Martin Worthington said, Well, this is actually a crowd given the field. This is a crowd, 20 people are listening to a talk on Babylonic poetry. But we also had um, at, uh, um, audiences of 50, 70, even 100 people. So this is really a great success. Um, and in this respect, uh, a cordial thanks to all of you, to the faithful uh, clients here um kind of recurring uh speakers and listeners like michael or kasha or whoever has come uh to our little show here and uh last but not least to the good ghost in the machine dr quiva whelan without her we would have been screwed really um because um yeah um it, it it has been so nice so i give you a very cordial applause um Thanks to all of you. And if you don't mind uh, when you leave, um, then, um, so Quiva says, can you please encourage attendees to fill out the survey? They will see when they close this seminar. So please fill out, fill out uh, the survey you will get when you uh, close the seminar. Um, and uh, because I, I guess uh, a bit of feedback is, is really uh, precious to all of us, and particularly the Long Room Hub, uh, who uh, an institution that has been our very appreciated partner for quite a long time. So thanks to all of you and um, have a good one, stay healthy. We'll see each other in a better life, uh, uh, meaning uh, hopefully in a hybrid way, hybridity is the buzzword of the 21st century. So I, I guess uh, Connor would not mind. So, uh, Goodbye to all of you. Exact zum Abschied, leise servus. Thank you.
2: The Hub is a community.
1: Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance towards the history of the year Library.
2: As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the
0: communities created by Star, Coral City. Like. Manage
3: Manage
2: The hub is about impact.
0: The hub is for everyone. the rise
1: of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.